waitress, and I had no idea. I'd, I had never even heard of the waitress um, or had any desire to, to see it, but any fans, by the way, of the waitress? Any? Yeah, okay, there's some. Um, now there's fans because you heard that song because, you know, okay, that's a song. Um, it's a story about this woman who is working as a pie chef in this small town, um, wait, waitressing in this diner, and her life hasn't worked out the way that she thought it would. Her husband is abusive. Um, her job is going nowhere. She has this affair with a, do a new doctor to their town and winds up pregnant, and of course he wants nothing to do with her. And it's really smart and, and funny and kind of sad, but sort of sweet and hopeful. But late in the second act, they hit you with this song we just listened to. And um, it, it's, she used to be mine. It's written by Sarah Bareilles, who, who performed it here. And um, as this song just kind of washed over the room, it just undid people in the theater. It was weird. There was not a dry eye in the house. But, you, I mean, it was almost awkward how emotional it was. Like, people were handing tissues to each other, and there was, like, sniffling everywhere. And some people were, like, you could, there were audible, like, crying noises, which is not really always that fun in public. Um, myself included. Like, this song, I, this song wrecks me every time I hear it. It's just so um, sad and beautiful. But I think it's more than that. I think it's, it's power is in that it names something true about the human experience which is that we are really, really hard on ourselves sometimes, you know? And, and I think we're hard on ourselves and we're hard on each other too. It's like we live with this idea that there's some perfect version of ourselves out there somewhere. And if we could just get our act together and minimize our mistakes and live up to our potential, we could finally be happy and have the life that we ought to have and, and finally be all that we think we ought to be and we can feel okay and be happy. And of course, it never seems to happen. And if we made some mistakes and, and misfires or missed some opportunities, the regrets can pile up pretty high. And we get down on ourselves for not having the life that we thought we could have or that we imagine for ourselves. Or even worse, we actually get the life that we imagine for ourselves, and it turns out that it's not, it doesn't do what we thought it would do, right? And we can start to feel disappointed and a little bit lost in the world. And we live with this sense of longing for wholeness, for something to, that will come along, right, and make us feel okay, like we can rest and be happy. And uh, so there are these moments when we're sitting with an acute sense of that longing and our own brokenness in the midst of it. I think that's what this song does. It just captures that experience of when life overwhelms us and we're aware of our own shortcomings and all that we have lost and all that we have given up along the way. And lots of things can trigger it. Um, for me, one of the big triggers is memory. Um, I have this thing where out of nowhere, I will often think of like some horribly embarrassing thing that's happened to me. Does this happen to anybody else? It comes out of nowhere. You know what I'm talking about? Just like the most humiliating thing. And you're like, I am a loser. Like <laughs> nobody else is as dumb as me in the entire world. My face gets all hot. It's terrible. Um, or often it's, it's some memory of like a mistake I made, a missed opportunity, like a bad choice or a regret. And I think if I could have just known then what I know now, I would have done it differently. You have that feeling ever? 
those memories of all the things that we've done wrong or of all the wrong things that were done to us. These things can haunt us. Sometimes it's just a memory of how time is passing so quickly. We start to feel like life is sort of slipping away from us. And the danger is, I think, with memories is that we'll begin to just live out of those, let them define us. Our regret and bitterness and sadness becomes a source. One of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, says this. He says, one way or another, we are always remembering. There is no escaping it, even if we want to, or at least no escaping it for long. Though God knows there are times when we try to, don't want to remember. In one sense, he says, the past is dead and gone, never to be repeated, over and done with. But in another sense, it is, of course, not done with at all, or at least not done with us. Beekner, man, he's no slouch either. Memory can do this. It fills us with this sense of longing um, for our life to have taken a different path, and we end up really judging ourselves kind of harshly and being sometimes consumed by the price we've paid. Often comparison will do this. It does for me, at least, trigger this experience when we see other people whose lives seem to have worked out so well. And of course, we're comparing our own broken self that we know from the inside to their, like other people's, highly curated exterior self, and they seem so free and so um, put together. And comparison can quickly send us down the, the, the black hole of longing um, for a more perfect version of ourselves. Loneliness, that's another huge trigger. When we feel like we don't belong somewhere, or like we're not connecting, we don't have the kind of relationships, nobody cares about us, sees us, makes us feel valued. Sometimes conflict can trigger the, these moments, especially with conflict, inner conflict, or conflict with somebody who fights dirty and exploits our own insecurities, you know, or like impugns our character or our motivation. We start to wonder, are they right? Like, is that who I am? And I think what, I mean, there are many more, but I think what these all have in common is that they bring to light the fact that our lives are all beset with these fundamental contradictions. Everyone is a mixed bag of light and darkness. I mean, every good thing that we can say or believe about ourselves might be true on some level, but on some other level, it is not true as well. It's a contradiction. Like the, the example I always use is that I will say, I love my wife, and when I say that, I mean it. But if you follow me around for long enough, you will find these moments when I do not love my wife, right? <laughs> and so which is true? Which is true? And the answer is, of course, both. Both are true. And this, this kind of contradiction just, just permeates all of our life. And Sarah Bareilles, she names it so perfectly in this song, in the lyrics. She's imperfect, but she tries, right? This is us. She's good, but she lies. 2.4 times a day on average, every human being lies, right? She's hard on herself. She's broken and won't ask for help. She's messy, but she's kind. She is lonely most of the time. Ugh, I just see the word lonely, and it hurts me. She is all of this mixed up and baked in a beautiful pie. And if we're honest, I think this is us. This is who we are. And so it doesn't take much, you know, memories of the past, comparison to others, a moment of loneliness, a conflict without or within. And we're spiraling into this sadness and longing and off chasing then some perfect version of ourselves. 
that will always be just beyond our reach because of these contradictions. And this, I think, is a universal thing, this longing for something missing, this sense that we're not okay and that somehow we, we missed it and we wish we could go back and fix our mistakes to, like she says in the song, to rewrite an ending or two, hmm. to recapture some, you know, lost sense of confidence. Remember how confident you were when you were like 18 years old? I was omniscient at that age. <laughs> And what often happens when we start to feel this is we turn to something that promises to help. And this help, I have noticed, it's my conviction, most often comes in the form of a purity code. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, a purity code uh, stems from the assumption that the negative, the contradictions, can be eliminated, that we can identify and eradicate the source of our problems. And you can always tell a purity code because um, they almost always have some kind of scapegoat and then they sell you some sort of silver bullet to fix the problem. Anytime you spot a scapegoat or a silver bullet, you can be sure that you're dealing with some kind of purity code. A, a scapegoat is just somebody to blame, right? We project our own sense of shame or fear or guilt or whatever onto someone else and they become the personification of all that is wrong. And, um, so, and then we... we excommunicate them or crucify them. And, and scapegoating, it's helpful because it gives us like a name and a face to, to, to put the blame. And, and it gives us this illusion that we can actually do something about it. But really, mostly all it does is just mask the way that we're all responsible for our own catastrophes. The silver bullet is usually slides in right behind the scapegoat and promises this quick fix a magic solution to a complex problem, right? The only problem is silver bullets, like down through history, have a near 100% failure rate, right? They, they just don't work. In fact, the real reason for the silver bullet is not to fix our problems, but to allow us to take kind of a hopeful posture toward this one day when everything will get fixed, when we get this one thing. That's purity codes. Scapegoating, silver bullets, and this lies beneath much of our public discourse, ethical, moral, religious, all of it, giving us this illusion that we can actually eliminate or escape or destroy the, the contradictions that live at the center of our lives. And our text for today, the story Kristen read, is a powerful example of when Jesus has met one of those purity codes head on and undermined it. And it's a familiar story, I think, to most of us, maybe too familiar, um, in part because I think it's, it's really the backstory to this story that makes it so powerful. The backstory is um, that Israel was once this great people whose national life had fallen into disgrace, devastated by two wars, one that destroyed the northern kingdom and the other that destroyed the south. And most of the Israelites had been killed or enslaved or exiled. And although some of them got to come back and start to build, rebuild Jerusalem um, a few centuries later, they were still living there, ruled over by a foreign power. And so living in Israel was like living in occupied France in World War II. It was your land, but you were not in control. The foreign army was in control. Like the whole nation was singing, she used to be mine, right? They're once great nation, now just 
a shadow its former self, subject to pagan armies, not free to determine their own course in the world. And so living with this longing, this disappointment. And the Pharisees come in, this powerful Jewish sect, and they had this belief that their whole problem, Israel's situation, was due to their failure to keep the law, the Jewish law. They believed, in fact, they had this belief that if, if everyone in Israel would keep the law perfectly for just one day, um, Yahweh would send Messiah to save them, to kick out the Romans and restore Israel and Jerusalem. It was this kind of silver bullet mentality that then also gave them a scapegoat. So anyone who did not keep the law perfectly, like the priests, it was their fault that Israel was in this mess. They're blamed and scapegoated for all their indignities. And so into the midst of that tension, Jesus comes to Jerusalem in John chapter 8. It says, At the dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using, this is kind of an interpretive gloss here. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. So Jesus, he, he'd been at it a while, preaching and teaching and healing and doing something odd, which is forgiving people of sin, saying, you're forgiven. And the Pharisees saw him rightly as a threat to their purity code. And so they start this conflict with Jesus at the temple. They bring this woman who they say is caught red-handed in the act of adultery, although notice that they don't produce any witnesses, which they were required to do. And they didn't bring the man she was with, and by Jewish law, he would be in trouble too. Nor do they even mention if she has a husband, because he would have legal rights in this situation as well. So the whole situation is a little fishy here. And the reason it's fishy, we're told, is because they, they're not really trying to do justice here. They're trying to ensnare Jesus because if he acquits her, he's in violation of the law. If he forgives her, he's in violation, or if he, he acquits her, he, he's in violation of the law. If he, if he um, forgives her, then they've got him trapped. He's on the hook. If he, if he says, let's kill her, then what's he doing? What's his What's this whole teaching about? It undermines everything he's been saying to the people up, up to now. And so what he does is stoops down and writes in the dirt, which is a funny thing to do. Um, almost all the scholars that I've read on this say that they think what he was really doing is snubbing the Pharisees. They wanted to fight, and he was just like, oh, my gosh, and sat down and was doodling in the dirt just as a way... <laughs> of not, not engaging their question. He's ignoring it, but kind of in, a, in an insulting way. He's showing them up here. But the Pharisees stay after him. They won't let it go. In fact, it says, when they kept on questioning him, finally he straightened up and said to them, let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So great. He answers the question in a way that flips it on them and puts them and the whole crowd in a bind because if they want to stone her, they must make a claim of sinlessness, which you're not allowed to do. Um, and, and none of them are prepared to do it. And then he just stoops down and starts writing in the dust again as if to say, I'm finished with you guys. You can all go now. And the crazy thing is they do. They go. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, it says, the older ones first, probably because they were wise, right? (laughs) Until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? And you know they laughed, both of them. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says, with like the biggest exhale ever. And he says, then neither do I condemn you, he declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's such a brilliant rhetorical move, right? He just undermines their purity code. They come at him with a scapegoat. And he's like, do you really think getting rid of this woman will solve your problem? Like, tell me, once she's dead, um, is the sin problem taken care of? Everyone. How many of you are without sin? Condemning her solves nothing. He just kind of ruins their purity code game there. And then they all kind of take off. And he turns to the woman and he he has like a couple of words for her. First, he says, where are they? Like, has nobody condemned you? She says, no. And he says, me neither. Neither neither do I. And in the Gospel of John, it's pretty clear. Jesus is claiming to be one with God, right? So this is... This is God's posture toward humanity. That's a pretty radical thing. It's a posture of non-condemnation. And and there are really no words to describe what happens um, in that moment. Instead of like humiliation and punishment comes love and grace and a moment really of reverence for her life and her struggle. And we're talking about reverence in these weeks. We've gone through reverence for each other, reverence for um, God, reverence for the planet. And I submit that this, this story is at least in part about having a little reverence for ourselves and for our own life. Does anybody condemn you? She says, no. And in this moment of reverence for her experience with all its pain, Jesus just kind of pushes aside scapegoats and and purity codes, and a straight-up miracle happens. Her past mistakes are met with, with grace, with this sense of reverence for the infinite worth of even the really broken parts of her life. And all of a sudden, she has a future. And her future is is transformed and opened up, and there are infinite possibilities for a new kind of life, one that was really unimaginable just moments before when she thought she was dead. And then he comes along with the second thing, which we sometimes confuse. He says, go now and leave your life of sin, or go and sin no more, we we often have heard. And, And of course, he's saying, you know, knock it off. You might want to rethink some of your choices here. But in large part, he's saying, you are now free to live your life not defined by the mistakes of your broken past. But you can live your life now rooted in this encounter with forgiveness and love and this deep reverence that this man just had for her pain and her life, even the most broken parts of it. Because who is without sin? Who is without brokenness? And there's a sense in what Jesus is saying, at least in part, is that there's no getting rid of it, you guys. There's no getting rid of the sense of brokenness that we carry around inside us. It's not going away. 
the line, um, I talk about this a lot, the line between good and evil does not exist between people and groups of people. The line between good and evil runs down the center of every human life. That's where it is. And yet Jesus comes along. This is uh, it's insane. He comes along and transforms that line that runs down each of us and transforms its function. It is no longer the barrier that keeps us from God and the source of condemnation. Now it's the place of God's love and mercy and grace and a point of contact between the human and the divine that opens up our future to something brand new. It's, it's stunning, this move. The place where God comes to meet, I mean, this is the whole gospel. The place where God meets us is in our brokenness. God comes near to this. So we don't have to be afraid or ashamed. We don't have to make ourselves crazy trying to rid ourselves of every negative thing. We can just bring it out in the open and hold it in front of Christ, who has shown himself to be the kind of man, the kind of God who holds even the broken stuff, this sense of reverence. And this, this sets us up for a different kind of a future. And it's really only when people stop clinging to their purity coats and their scapegoats and silver bullets that they can even see that kind of a future in the world. And, and it starts with this realization and this admission is why I use the word ragamuffin so often and why it's now the, the Redemption Church drinking game, apparently, if you're watching at home. Um, that, that to be human involves contradiction. We are ragamuffins, right? Um, in fact, one of my favorite, the guy who gave us the ragamuffin language, Brennan Manning, he said this, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. That's it. <laughs> That's us. We're just this bundle of contradictions. And, and the Christian faith, at its heart, at the center of it, tells us that this brokenness, this contradiction, is no reason to despise ourselves or each other. It's actually a reason to hold our lives with deep reverence. Not for our ability to like, get things right, because when has that ever happened, right? But for the joy of encountering God's tenderness at that place of brokenness and despair and longing for something to be different. King David once wrote in Psalm 139 that to be human is to be fearfully and wonderfully made. I've always loved that phrase, fearfully and wonderfully made. I did not know until this week when I looked into it a little bit. The word fearfully there in Hebrew is yare, which is also the Old Testament word for, wait for it, reverence. Same word. So it's completely legitimate to, to say, translate that, you have been reverently and wonderfully made by God. You are meant to live your life as if you are the child 
of like the world's greatest father because that's what you are. And, and listen to me, some of you, like I run into this every day. Um, some of you are really discouraged about the state of the world and our planet and our nation, and I get it. I am too, like it's a dumpster fire out there right now. But I also keep running into a lot of us, and I include myself in this, where we get so down on ourselves. You get down on yourself in your own life. And it's like you can't see what a gift your life is to the world. And you get plagued by, you know, memories of the past, by comparison to those whose life seems so great, and loneliness and longing to connect, and conflict and loss, and you're just being really hard on yourselves and those around you sometimes. Like there's some perfect version of life out there and you just can't seem to actualize it. And you need to hear me today. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But there is a good life ahead of you. It's not perfect, but it's hopeful. It has longing, but not the kind of longing that sends you into despair, but that sends you into hope. But here's the thing. The basis of your good life, the basis of your hopeful future is not found in some perfect performance or some sinless and non-contradictory version of yourself. It's just not. The basis of your good life and your hopeful future is found in this. You are human. You are created and called into being by God and you have been reverently and wonderfully made and so your life listen to me your life demands to be held with reverence with great reverence and it needs to be held that way by you and us but you and if it's not happening, you got to find a way to fight for this, you guys. You're not a mistake of physics. You're not just an animal with consciousness or self-awareness like it's so often portrayed. You're not any of those things. You're a precious child of God. That's who you are. And your presence on this earth is a blessing. And I know we're living in confusing times, and I know that we have all made a ton of mistakes and We'll make more later this afternoon, I'm sure, all of us. And it can be easy to scapegoat and look for silver bullets, and it can be way, way, way too easy to doom scroll and end up in despair, right? Um, longing for a better world, longing for a better life. But it is in that place, it is in that moment, just like Sarah Bareilles wrote into her song, that you need to look deep down to the life that's inside you growing stronger each day till it finally reminds you to fight just a little, to bring back the fire in your eyes. Like, that's what you're made for. And if you're in this cycle, and I think that a lot of us are because of what's happening inside us and what's happening all around us, where we begin to despair and we think this is all there is and this isn't enough, that we need to fight for something better. I mean, if I was casting a movie about the woman caught in adultery, Jesus would say, no man condemns you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. He would exit stage left. She would sit down and sing that Sarah Bareilles song. Like, 
if you look down in there, it's, it's there if you fight for it, the spark of the divine. And if you'll fight just a little, it, it will begin to emerge. But, but you have to begin with holding your life with some reverence. The kind of reverence that sees it as a gift from God. And then fight just a little for a sense of meaning and hope in all of it. Not just the good, but the bad. Not just the put together, but the broken parts too. I mean, if I could make anything true of Redemption Church um, it would be this, that we would all learn to hold our own lives with a sense of reverence. I know you've made mistakes, but they're, they don't count you out. They count you in on the blessing. That we would hold our lives with a sense of reverence for what an incredible gift it is to just be you. Because this unlocks everything. There is, there's no such thing as a life without contradictions and failures and brokenness. You, you cannot live a life without the ruptures and, and the rips and the struggles and the failures, but you can live with a deep sense of assurance that all those broken things are the point of contact between you and, and God and that even Christ looks at them and holds them with reverence and says, this is where it begins, you and me, from here on. And if you do this, your disappointments and sadness We'll all go away and everything will be for perfect. <laughs> of course not, right? They will not go away. They will still be there. This is one of the weird things where we turn religion into a purity code. And we, we promise people you'll get fixed. And it's kind of, it's grown up Christianity to realize that's not how it works. Your brokenness and your sin does not go away. It's forgiven, and that's better. They don't disappear. It's transformed by the love of God into the place where a whole new future becomes possible. That's the good news, man. That's the gospel. That's really good news. All of our brokenness becomes transformed into the place of God's loving presence, a God who meets us in our brokenness with love and grace and with deep, deep reverence for our own life and our own experience, all of it, the good and the bad. And this can heal us. This can heal us. And this can send us into a future that is good, where there's reason to hope. Amen? Let's pray. Just for a moment, just kind of hold our lives our own identity, for better or worse. Just hold it um, with a sense of reverence. Lord, we give you thanks for this story and we want so much to have the courage to tell the truth about our lives, the good and the bad and the ugly, and, and to trust that somehow you are here in that place and in that moment, and that, as Christ said, that you're making all things new. 
We just confess how hard it is to believe this sometimes. It's just such, it's so excruciatingly vulnerable to sit in our own brokenness and to admit it, even just to ourselves. And then we judge ourselves really harshly. We're hard on ourselves and on each other, and, and we need you to help us not be that way. And then pray that, that for all of us, we would have new and powerful experiences of you meeting us in our own judgments, our own self-criticism, in our conflicts and, and memories, our loneliness and all of it. Would you come to us and speak words of forgiveness? Would you encourage us and say, you know, go and don't live from this brokenness, live from new life. We need to hear this from you and from each other. And pray that this would be the story of Redemption Church. And pray especially for folks here who are just struggling and feeling despair or feeling really down on themselves. Pray that we would be brave to reach out to one another. Be brave to hold our lives with a sense of reverence and to fight. And that you would take all of this up into your story of new life and the kingdom of God. We pray this all together in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. And um, the way we do this is we just come forward row by row, and we're offered um, the, the bread and the cup. It's kind of in these safety-wrapped things for COVID. But um, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ and you can receive it then and say amen or say I will remember however you want to respond. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it and gave thanks for it and then sent it around the circles to his disciples who all ate it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup after supper, same thing, passes it around. They all share in the one common cup. And he said, this cup um, is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God established by my life. And it's this new deal that we were talking about today. And he said, whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take this new deal into your life, be made of this stuff, and then go out into the world and, and live a new way. He said, whenever you get together, do this. And so that's why we receive communion. I know it's like a weird thing to do, but this is why we're remembering what we're made of. And um, so invite anybody who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. If you would, um, let's pray a blessing on this meal. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light.
and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?